0: We are on the final Sunday of a six-week series on marriage from a book by Willard Harley called Love Busters. How many have you been, everybody has been here for all five previous, some of you? So we've had a great time talking through these six different busters of love in marriage, if you're married and you were here, you probably said, yeah, I did that one, and I think I did that one too. Uh, So part of our challenge in marriage, my wife and I have been married for 46 years. We're coming up on 46 this April, I think it is, 1976 till today. Last week, Nathan and Caitlin sat up here and covered the, the fifth of six called Annoying Habits. They did a great job, didn't they, those of you who are here? I must confess that I derived an inordinate amount of demented sort of pleasure from hearing my pastor and his wife tell each other about what annoys them. <laughs> well, now we know. <laughs> But today I have the assignment to talk about independent behavior, which ironically is a highly valued feature of our culture, if you think about it. Being independent, self-reliant, big value in American Western culture. And yet, according to Willard Harley, it's a buster when it comes to marriage and love. You didn't get married to be independent. And uh, there's another alternative to independence. We'll talk about that this morning. I must confess, though, too, that learning how not to behave in an independent way was a big challenge for me in my marriage to my wife, Beth. Um, Often I think we're not even aware of how independent we are in our attitudes and our behavior until we get hitched and our new partner in life reminds us or tells us about something we've done that was really independent and they're like, don't I matter? So I've had to learn. It's been a long learning experience. Quite honestly, if we're doing some more confession, uh, I'm still learning about that one. It's kind of painful to our pride when we're told these love busters, and that's part of learning how to communicate in marriage. You learn how to tell your partner in a respectful way what they're doing that is annoying you or hurting you or marginalizing you, rather than just take it inside or do one back in retribution, part of marriage communication. That was what we, Beth and I were really good at. You know, She would do something annoying to me, then I would do something back. And I thought, you know, I had the moral high ground, so she deserved it, you know, that kind of thing. You, you kind of, If you're going to stay married, you kind of grow up through that, and you realize that's probably not the best dynamics for uh, intimacy, you know. So, <clears throat> so you learn how to eat your pride a little bit rather than uh, just justify your bad behavior and defend yourself. So over 46 years of marriage, I have done both. My wife was so excited about me sharing today on independent behavior that she left town. <laughs> Flew to Indiana to hang out with her sister for the weekend. <laughs> All right, well, she did, do, she did go for another reason, her, her sister's 50th wedding anniversary, but anyway, I got your attention. <laughs> So my inclination towards independent behavior, we're gonna to get to a scripture, but I gotta open this up with this confessional. My independent, uh, my independent behavior started coming out in the first year of our marriage, 1976. In April, we were married and 10 months later, I took a trip, my first trip, not my first trip overseas, my actually, my second trip outside the country, first trip to Asia in February in 1977. Went for two weeks with a group of three other guys and we did ministry in the Philippines and Hong Kong. It was life-changing for me to be exposed to this part of the world, the most populous part of the world. <clears throat> of course, Beth didn't go along. She was pregnant with our first child, and she didn't go, and she stayed home. And when I got back, I tried to relate all this ma- massively wonderful experience. And of course, being a young married guy, and still getting over my independence. I just laid it out there, you know, came up to the door, came in the door, gave her a hug and a kiss and said, we're moving to Asia. <laughs> She's like, what? <clears throat> Somehow it made perfect sense to me, you know. Uh, well, 10 months later, later that year at least, uh, we did take a secondary trip to Asia together for three months with our newborn. And uh, so she kind of got on board with the idea and it wasn't just independent behavior pushing her towards it. But we ended up spending 15 years in Asia as a couple. So, this last one, as I said, we're going to talk about is independent behavior. And the, the antidote for independent behavior is what Willard Harley calls interdependent, not codependent. That's an unhealthy form of relating to someone that's unhealthy, a codependent behavior. Uh, but interdependent where we come to realize that I give up my independence in order to be interdependent with someone else so that I am adding value to their lives and they're adding value to mine and we learn what we need from that other person and we also realize that that other person has needs that we can meet and that's done in a respectful and nurturing way. So here's the definitions that Willard Harley actually gives. I think they should be on your screen. So, interdependent, independent behavior is the conduct of one spouse that is conceived and executed as if the other spouse didn't even exist. So, of course, that other spouse feels really hurt, left out, marginalized when we, when we conduct ourselves this way. Sometimes they'll just take it in and say nothing and just be wounded and things go on, but intimacy is, is affected. Uh, other people, like my wife, is more outspoken. She just comes right to me and lets it out, and her challenge was not to let it out in a way that wounded me right back. So you have different personality types in how we deal with these things, but interdependent behavior is the conduct of both spouses that nurtures and protects each other. Now we've been reading 1 Corinthians 13 as sort of our landing text all this last six weeks, and I wanna read it again, only today I'm gonna give it the Doug Gaiman's paraphrase version. I I didn't introduce myself for those of you who are new here. I'm Doug Gaiman, I'm one of the board members here at Upper Room since the very beginning when we were a Bible study at the marina down on the main drag coming in over Bob Sykes Bridge where we started. We've been meeting as a church now. I think we're celebrating our fifth anniversary this fall. Anyway, I'm on the board. Hi. (laughs) So, this is Doug Gaiman's paraphrase version of 1 Corinthians 13, the text that we use. In this version, I replace the phrase, have not love. Have not love. I replace it with the words, a selfishly independent person, okay? And I replace the word love with the term selfless interdependent people. So let's read this from 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but am a selfishly independent person, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but am a selfishly independent person, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but am a selfishly independent person, I gain nothing. By comparison, selfless interdependent people are patient and kind. Selfless interdependent people do not envy or boast. They are not arrogant or rude. They do not insist on their own way. They are not irritable or resentful. They do not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoice with the truth. Selfless interdependent people bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. Selfless, interdependent people never end. Then he goes on, he says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And the reason I'm reading this is for verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am, have been fully known. So faith, hope, and love abide, but these three, but the greatest of these is love. If we could identify, and the reason I wrote, read that verse 11, where Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. If there's one thing we could use that would identify the fundamental characteristics of independent behavior, it would be that verse. When I was a child. In other words, independent behavior is childish. childish. Think about it. A child's world revolves around himself or herself. Anybody who has kids, you get this. I, we now have, we have 12 grandkids. We're getting this all the time, okay? <laughs> a child doesn't like to share. A child wants what he wants, and he wants it right now. And when things don't go a child's way, he whines and he cries and he screams until he gets what he wants, our mom and dad or grandpa and grandma put him in a time out. In the second verse, half of verse 11, Paul says this, he says, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. In other words, adults are different. Adults behave differently. We share. We share joyfully. We discover this great thing called giving and generosity and participation with other people. We derive a great sense of Of joy from that community. Adults are patient, graceful, considerate of others. Adults respond to provocation in a measured and thoughtful way. Adults listen respectfully to the perspectives and opinions of others. In other words, this most intimate of human relationships called marriage is not for boys and girls, it's for adults. And if there's anything that's going to help you grow up, it's getting married. And you're either going to have to grow up or you're probably not going to be married for very long. Uh, my wife and I have good friends. They're part of the globe world. They're both doctors. He's a dermatologist. She's a radiologist. Their names are Robert and Susan Griffith. He, he, and they've done marriage seminars because they went through trauma in their marriage and got healed and got better And then we did marriage seminars together, my wife and I and him and his wife, uh, for our Globe missionary family. And so we have learned a lot, worked a lot together. And Robert and Susan once told us this story after they had gone to the marriage retreat and learned about Love Busters and learned how to behave in a different way to them in their own marriage relationship about respectful communication and respectful listening to each other when one brings to another something that's tough to talk about. So one day Susan, and she's a very quiet person, and Robert's a very outgoing guy, says Susan learned how to man up and talk to her husband about something that was bothering her. She comes to him about an annoying habit, and she says to him sweetly, Honey, after you get your socks or your underwear out of your dresser drawer, would you mind... Pushing the door, the drawer shut. You know, Robert was the kind of guy that he, you know, he hung his clothes on the floor, you know. And dresser drawers were left open because I'm going to need to get in there again, maybe tomorrow. Where Susan, she was neat, you know, and dresser drawers were meant to be pushed shut. <clears throat> Robert told me, he said, boy, inside, you know. <laughs> I could have reacted, I could have told her, mind her own business as my dresser. <laughs> and then we wouldn't have talked to each other for three days. He said, I could have, but I could have just said, and I did, certainly dear, I'll try to remember to do that. He said, how easy is it for me to just push the dresser drawer shut? I mean, this is not like difficult. <laughs> This is a three second exercise that saves me three days of headaches. When we think about it, independent behavior, that kind of pride that rises up and don't tell me what to do is the root problem in all of the love busters. Selfish demands, disrespectful judgments, These are the love busters, by the way. Angry outbursts, dishonesty, annoying habits, and independent behavior all come from this single attitude me, me, me first. The attitude of independence or selfishness is at the root of every human relationship problem. And the thing about it is the answer to selfishness is not like self deprecation I'm a bad person put yourself down you know I'm no good maybe some of that is actually true theologically we we, there's something broken in us but it's not just putting yourself down Tim Keller says that the answer to selfishness is not thinking less of ourselves there might be some time when it's good for us to take account and say man I really have screwed up and I need to make some changes But it's not this chronic behavioral thing of just low self-esteem. That's not what the Bible means. Tim Keller says, it's not thinking less of ourselves. It's, It's thinking about ourselves less. In other words, being selfless isn't putting yourself down. Selflessness simply means I'm focusing more on the value of other people around me. It's putting others first, listening, considering, deferring. Try that sometime when you're in traffic, you know. It's hard. The central operating principle of Christianity is others first. The central operating principle of the world is your life for me, your life to benefit me, what can I get out of this relationship? The central operating principle of Jesus Christ is my life for you, my life to help you, my life to serve you, I give my life for you. In most traditional wedding ceremonies, and if you've had a traditional wedding and you, you uh, exchange traditional vows, they, they go something like this, and I'm gonna put my, my, my and my wife's name in here. I'm gonna say it as from the husband's point of view. I, Doug Gaiman, take thee, Beth Wolf, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. There's five little words that are often kind of jumped over in our minds in terms of our memories, and those five little words are to have and to hold. What does that even mean? You almost have to be a banker or a realtor to get it because those, those are words that are still held in financial circles and in, in real estate transactions. To have and to hold. It's easy to say, hard to live. It's is a huge promise. I, Doug Gaiman, take thee, Beth Wolf, to be my wedded wife. To have and to hold. It's the first part of the vows. To have and to hold. It's a complete renunciation Right out the gate of my independence, I take you to have and to hold. The phrase to have and to hold was originally a property rights legal phrase that defined the interests and conditions that were conveyed in a transfer of property. In marriage vows, it's like the same to have and to hold. With it's one caveat, though, in terms of transfer of property, and that is the transfer of ownership is not from me to you, but from me to us. What was mine now is ours. What was my wife's is now ours. Genesis 2:24 says, "Therefore, a man shall leave." This is the second chapter of the Bible very beginning a man shall leave his mother father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall be one flesh so it's not me or you it's us the greek word the greek word for cleave that's used in the king james version of scripture it's proskaleo it means to join or to unite. it's like it's like a suggestion of glue of bringing two things together in an inseparable bond. To have and to hold means two people are creating a bond that cannot be broken. The Song of Solomon says it a little bit more romantically. 2 verse 16 says this, my beloved is mine and I am his. <laughs> to hold means also to means to keep, to tend, to watch over. In other words, to nourish, care for. Paul kind of reiterates this in in Ephesians chapter five when he reminds spouses to nourish each other. To nourish means I help my spouse become everything God created them to be. When we go through marriage confidence, this is very true for us, especially for me, this independent guy learning how to live, you know, with knowledge. The Bible talks about live with your spouse with knowledge, you know. Um, Everything that went wrong, I just just naturally blamed it on her. (laughs) I'm perfect, you know. The arrogance that we have sometimes, not able or willing to look at our own flaws, ever turn around and say, you know, I probably am actually being a jerk here. But learning how to take that Turn and look at ourselves. This big learning challenge of marriage. We go into it for the opposite reasons. You're going to meet my needs. You know, it's the Tom Cruise. You know, saying to um, in in uh, that movie. What was it called? He says, "You complete me." You know, I, I'm incomplete till I found you. Well, what? I wonder what happened three years later. I mean, you didn't complete me anymore. <laughs> You're complete pain in the neck. <clears throat> One pastor said, you know, if, if, if love is a dream, marriage is the alarm clock. <laughs> so I first really learned a lesson about independent behavior when we were on the mission field and we were having our second child. So we, we moved to Taiwan in 1979. We'd already been overseas a couple of times. It, prior to that, we moved to Taiwan. Uh, we had one little, one little daughter, Corey, and she was just past her second birthday when we moved. She just was coming up on her second birthday and Beth was pregnant with number two. And in December, late November, I had to make this trip. We were living in Taiwan in the north of the island and I had to make a trip to the south of the island to set up some meetings for the team that I was a part of as an intern. And Beth was great with child, you know. And she's like, I don't know if you should go. And I'm like, oh, it'll be okay, you know. (laughs) I'll be back. It was two days. It was just a trip down and come back on Sunday. Trip Friday back Sunday. I said, oh, it'll be okay, honey. And she's like, I don't know if you should go. You know, she was trying to be real sweet. And I left. And, of course, didn't work out the way I thought. And this is back in the day when we all lived in caves. You know, there was no internet, there was no cell phones. For you young people, you know, we all lived in caves back in those days. We did have telephones, but it had to be attached to one phone to another phone for a wire. We called it a landline now. Nobody has landlines, you know, anymore. So, there was no way to get a hold of me. And I'm out running around. I come back to the place where I was staying, which was like a mission compound. And the lady who was running it comes running over to me at four o'clock in the afternoon and says, You need to go home. Your wife had a baby. (laughs) I'm like, Oh my gosh, am I ever dead? You know. (laughs) I jumped on a bus. It's three or four hours back to the north. I run home as fast as I could. I I'm running into the house at about 5 o'clock and then, uh, well, it was later than that because it was 4 in the afternoon when she came to saw me. So it was evening I'm, and my wife is sitting there in the house with our other child nearby and a little baby in her, in her arms, this puffy little faced woman with tears in her eyes, glowing with baby and looking at me and I'm like eating crow and living in dog houses for a long time. She was very forgiving, uh, but every now and then she brings out the crow, you know, just kind of reminds me. (laughs) So six years later, six years, we had two, and then this third child came on. It's a whole other story, a miracle story. I won't tell that one this morning, but I was, now we were living in Thailand, and I was making doing work in Sri Lanka, which is about 1,500 miles away. So a three-hour flight, and I was planning this trip over the time. It had been planned a year before, and I was gonna make this trip over the time that our third-born, Trevor, was coming. And I told Beth, I said, I'm not going on this trip. You know, I'm not doing the Jeremy gig again. (laughs) And she said, no, she said, "I, I, I feel like it's okay for you to go. I I just feel peace about it. I prayed about it and I think you should go." And I'm like, I don't think I should go, you know. And she no, I really think you should go. I I feel peace about it. I'm like, okay. Huh? Independent behavior, interdependent behavior. So I went on the trip with our team. We, two weeks later, got a red eye from Colombo, Sri Lanka, back to Bangkok, arrived in the morning at 5 a.m. and my wife is waiting at the gate. This is the day when you could actually come into the airport, way different now, but she's waiting right at the gate when I'm coming out and there she is, great with child, not holding a baby, but big tummy. And I'm like, what are you doing here? We live three hours outside of Bangkok. So I'm like, what are you doing here? And she said, I've been here three days. I came up for my doctor's appointment and he told me, don't leave. This baby is coming. So can we go home? I need a change of clothes. We got we got in a we got in a van, uh, in a bus. We took the bus 3 hours to our home outside of Bangkok. Took showers, packed suitcases, got in our vehicle, drove back up to Bangkok the very same day. Got back to Bangkok about 5 p.m got settled in, we were staying with some missionary friends, we stayed in their home, got, went to bed, at 4 a.m. Beth's waking me up said, we got to go to the hospital, the baby's coming. And we ran to the hospital and Trevor was born. Is that timing or what? And that was like a huge win because I really listened to my wife that second time. The first time, she had to, I didn't tell this part of the story, but I'll tell it now, She had no phone in our house. You know, we are poor missionaries living in a little tiny house. She had to get up with our two-year-old daughter and walk five blocks to the missionary leader's house because we didn't have a phone to call, and they didn't have a vehicle, so she had to walk over to their house with her water had broken, and she's walking with a two-year-old next to her five blocks to the other missionary's house where there's a telephone, and got there without having a baby en route, and then called the other missionary family who had a car, because we had just moved to the island and hadn't even got a car yet, and they, the young missionary's son, who had just bought himself a brand-new Volvo, (laughs) they had money, and he he comes driving over in his brand-new Volvo. My wife gets in the back seat and tries for an hour and a half not to push this baby out on his brand-new Volvo car seat. while they ran 100 miles an hour to the hospital an hour and a half away. They get out, they rush her in, and she has Jeremy in seven minutes after she gets in there. Whew. I got some stories about independent behavior, okay? <clears throat> okay, why is independent behavior so difficult? Why is it hard to change? There's a great story in the book of Second Kings. It's in chapter 5, and it's about this man named Naaman, who is a leper but he's also a man of great influence. And this story really illustrates something that happened in Naaman um, when, when he got healed of leprosy. So here's what 2 Kings chapter five says about Naaman and his transformation when God healed him of leprosy. It says here about him, Naaman a commander of the army of the king of Syria. So he's a commander of the army. And we found out later in the story, he's like, he's like the top, a top guy. He, he stands next to the king when the king goes to worship. A commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Later in the story, it tells him how wealthy he was because when he found out there's this prophet in Israel that could maybe heal him of his leprosy. He got loaded up horses, chariots, gold, silver, clothing, gifts to bring to the prophet. If you'll heal me, man, I'll make you rich. So he's a leper, has no hope for the healing of leprosy living in the nation of Syria. Even with all this wealth and influence, he can't change anything about his life He has a little slave girl, a Jewish girl, in his home because there was a war between Syria and Israel and they'd taken captives and brought them back to Syria and one of them was this little slave girl. We don't know how old she was, but she was young. She lived in Naaman's house as a slave. She said to Naaman's wife, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, which is a part of Israel, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman heard about it, so Naaman decided to go on a trip and go to Israel to find this prophet. There's more to the story, I don't have time to tell you about it, but he writes a letter to the king, and the king's like, why are you writing me a letter about your leprosy? You think I can heal you? (laughs) But he ends up going to to Elisha the prophet's house with this huge entourage, and he arrives in the front of Elisha's house, and Elisha doesn't even come out to meet him. He sends his servant out. He says, tell him, go wash in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. Naaman was furious. He turned away and said, I thought for sure he'd come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the bad spot and cure the disease. What a waste of my time, he's basically saying. Aren't there rivers in Damascus that are way better? The Abana, the far, far better than Israel's water? Couldn't I wash in them and be clean? He turned away in a huff. Naaman's servants that were a part of this entourage were a little smarter than him. And they said, our father, he said, the prophet, if the prophet would have told you to do something difficult, you would have done it so why don't you do this small thing go wash in the is in the jordan river what harm you know they're saying what harm will it do you so naaman swallowed his pride and went down and bathed in the jordan seven times like elisha had told him and he was cured it says his skin became like a young boys if we're if we're honest we're not that much different than naaman when it comes to these kind of things. Our pride is a tough battle to win. To swallow our pride, to listen to our spouse about something, to ask for help from them, to change, strikes directly at our in- independence and our presumed autonomy. We're not as autonomous as we think we are. We need other people. We desperately need. You need that spouse you have. Wife, you need that husband. Husband, you need that wife. But the surrender of independence is the key to a healthy relationship with God. We have to do this with others and with your spouse. A wise pastor once said these words. He said, To become a Christian, all you need is is need. All you need is nothing, but most people don't have it. A few years ago, I met an atheist couple who had come to Christ through a marriage enrichment course. The idea of going to church was beyond the pale for this couple. They were proud atheists, but their marriage was falling apart and they were desperate. So a friend had recommended the course and he assured them, okay, nobody's gonna try to convert you, nobody's gonna put any pressure on you about the religious stuff, just try it. So they decide, okay, we'll try it. Well, the first big hurdle was getting over this Christ-centered talk, you know, asking God for help, encouraging you to ask God for help. They had a real problem with the idea of praying to a God that didn't exist. So they had this conversation in, you know, at home about it, and they said, well, why don't we just remove the word God and put in the word good, and we'll just ask good to help us. <laughs> so they agreed, let's do that. That helps us get over this hurdle. The second hurdle they had a little trouble with was the suggestion that a wife should submit to her husband. Well, this atheist woman was an independent gal. She was a liberated woman. There was no way in the world I'm going to submit to a man. Well, that was part of the marriage problem. And of course, the husband had his own problems with nurture and care and laying his life down. You know, I will lay my life down with anybody, you know. But they decided okay, what we're doing isn't working and we need help, so let's just experiment. They were humble enough, like, name and why don't you just go try you know so she decided okay I'll try to this submission thing feels weird but and he said okay I'll try to serve my wife and consider her first and try to think about what gives her joy and what makes her feel valued so they both are trying this thing and they're asking good to help them the wife discovered suddenly that she loves submission <laughs> this was cool got her off the hook you know. They would talk about something and she would say why don't you just take care of that. <laughs> She's like man I didn't have to worry about anything. <laughs> just you take care of that. And the husband discovered the same when he put his wife first. She was a whole lot more fun to live with you know. Great fun to come home to. By the end of the course they had both given their lives to Jesus Christ. They turn good back to God and realize this is real. This works. Well, I want to conclude, and the worship team can start making their way up here. I want to conclude with this thought. Contemporary culture does, a, does us a disservice sometimes. And I'm not here to disparage our culture, but sometimes it tells us this. It says all of your problems are on the outside. Somebody's doing somebody wrong. Somebody's mistreated you, somebody's hurt you, and probably all of that is true. But what they tell you is the answer to that is to say, just go inside and find out who you really are. Go inside and find that person you were born to be. Don't let other people hurt you. Find that true person who you really are. What you find out when you take that approach, you find you go down inside, and inside there's a whole lot of darkness and brokenness. Jesus is so the world is kind of like a inside outside kind of per- approach where Jesus is just the opposite. He says your problems aren't on the outside. There are problems, but the real problem is on the inside. There's darkness there. There's brokenness there. There's pride and there's stubbornness and there's woundedness and there's confusion. And you're, if you dig down inside, you're never going to find what you're looking for because it ain't there. You've got to go outside to get help. And that comes from God. And you've got to let Him in. You've got to ask for His help. You have to allow Him to come in. You can't get there on your own, you can't find it on your own. But if you let Him come into your life, this is what Jesus meant when He said, for whoever will save His life, we will lose it. We cling and hang on to these things. I'm not letting go. But Jesus said, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He's saying as long as you hold on to your identity and your pride and your autonomy and your position, you're never going to find life or peace. But as soon as you let it go and turn it over to him and surrender your rights and your position, and even your wounds, life will happen for you. God spoke the same thing to the Apostle Paul when he was struggling with his own sense of weakness and he said this famous verse in the, book, the second book of Corinthians, he says, my grace is enough. One translation says, my grace is sufficient for you. It's all you need. My strength, God's strength, is made perfect in your weakness. That's a miracle of Christianity. He helps us where we can't. He healed Naaman where all his wealth and influence and power couldn't help. When each person surrenders our rights, Willard Harley calls this the policy of mutual agreement for a couple. The policy of mutual agreement each person in the couple surrenders their rights and says, I want to do what's best for us. I won't do anything without your approval. And the the couple defines what that means. My wife doesn't need to micromanage what I wear every day and how much money I spend at the grocery store, but there's probably a dollar figure in her mind that says, you know, if you spend more than that, I would really kind of like to be a part of that decision. All of you might have that number in your head, you know, So it's not micromanaging each other, but it's this idea of considering the other person first and mutually agreeing, I will never willingly do something that will violate that trust. When each person surrenders their right to be independent, first to Jesus, but then to that other person, and both agree to consider the other person first in how we spend our money, and where we go on vacation, and what career choices we make, or even activities that have to do with our intimacy. Then that interdependent, that mutual agreement lays the foundations for a healthy walk with God and intimacy in marriage. Why is that? Because in that surrender, we take on that character of Jesus that says, my life for you. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray for every person in this room, especially our married couples and others maybe who've gone through a difficult break of a marriage and even others that are thinking about marriage or talking about marriage. Lord, we know it's a tough, it's a tough relationship but it's better than every every other every other alternative in the world. You created this idea of community. I just pray, Lord, you'd help us to do our marriage relationships well, to honor each other, to serve each other, to listen to each other, consider each other's needs above our above and before our own. Lord, we just thank you that's a, that's what you do for us. You laid your life down willingly. It's not even that we sought you out. You sought us out. Thank you for that, Lord. Help us to grow in that kind of Christ-like lifestyle, I pray. In Jesus' name.